0: This is the Unseminary Podcast, stuff you wish they taught in seminary. Hey, friends, welcome to a, a special edition of the Unseminary Podcast. Super excited that you have tuned in and even more excited for my guest today, Tanya Marlowe. Uh, she wrote an article that really stuck out to me um, around this whole report that came out on uh, Ravi Zacharias and really the kind of full picture, that, or maybe it's not the full picture, a, a portion of what's come out in that uh, that area. And I thought what, what Tanya had to say was super Uh, poignant, and I I wanted to expose you to her and to to what she had to say. Uh, So welcome to the show, Tanya. so glad you're here.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I
0: I wonder if we could start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, kind of give us your context and tell us a little bit about who you are.
1: (laughs) Well, um, the way that I put it in short is that I used to be a full-time Christian minister and um, Mm -hmm. a lecturer in kind of... uh, biblical hermeneutics um at a kind of uh, lay ministry level and then i got sick and became a writer um and so my Mm. story is that i always felt a call to christian ministry like i guess um, most Mm. of your listeners and um i happened to marry someone who also felt a call to christian ministry i felt a call to go abroad he felt a call to be a church of england vicar and uh well However, many years on, and uh, he is in the Church of England, and we haven't really gone abroad. And um, the thing that <laughs> kind of nice. blew, blew up my life uh, was uh, 10 years ago when I gave birth, I already had um, an, an illness called myalgic encephalomyelitis. And uh, when I gave birth, that mm. made it worse. And overnight, I had a baby and became bedbound. And, I have been housebound for the past 10 years. And being in that experience has made me look again very deeply at how the church teaches about theodicy and the reasons for suffering, and looking at actually how some of those reasons Mm. can do great pastoral damage. And so, where I'm coming from in this whole thing Mm. is I'm very interested in stories and the danger of the single story. I think it's Tim Amanda Adagosier, who's a mm. who's a novelist who says that the danger of the single story. And when we as a church mm. just present one story instead of the fullness of God often that can have great pastoral damage mm-hmm. and that's I'm about to start a PhD on mm. chronic embodied suffering in Job and so that's where I'm coming from looking at um, the kind of stories we tell and when actually they can be pastorally very harmful. And I'm from Britain. Well, <laughs> I, we um, the
0: accent. yes. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Which is, yeah, exactly. I, I, I like to joke with, uh, you know, with my friends from across the pond when I, when I meet them, I, I'll often say, um, like, oh, something like, man, I, I really love your Texas accent. Where, whereabouts in Texas are you from? And they'll look at like, me, like, they're going to slap me. Um, which is kind of <laughs> funny. So, um, yeah. Well, I, so I bumped into your article and I don't, I was actually thinking right before we jumped on, I'm not sure how it was. It's just the magic of the internet, I guess. Someone must have passed it along to me. Um, And I, I, so the title is, uh, but his books are still good, right? Five things Christians must stop saying about sexual abusers. And Um, I thought this was an incredibly poignant article. I thought it was super helpful. I thought it was thought-provoking. I passed it on to leaders in my circle as like, hey, here's, I think, a great conversation starter around these issues. Obviously, the kind of most recent thing we're talking about, which which we really don't, uh, we we can get into talking specifically about the Ravi Zacharias situation, but I actually want to lift up a level higher than that and talk about some of the things that I think you provide a great insight around how do we think about these issues when they come up. And how do we um, talk about them as leaders? I think to your point in your introduction, how we talk about them as leaders, I think for me, the part that struck me was, wow, like it's super powerful, the language we use around these things. And some things that we might think are harmless could actually be continuing to actually, you know, propagating uh harm so what i'd love to do if it's okay for you is actually to talk about a couple of them have you kind of unpack them a little bit we'll link in the show notes people that are listening we'll link to the full article we're going to email it out to everybody to to link a link to that so make sure you get a chance to read it this is kind of a uh, i'm hoping is in to whet your appetite uh dear listeners to to invest the time to uh both read and then pass on and and talk this. so one of the things you talk about is the false equivalency um tell me about that what what is the false equivalency and how could we fall into that trap
1: Well yeah I mean the my article has really blown up in a way that has surprised me um it's it's I think the most popular article I've ever written on my blog um and I think it is just because uh, the, the things that we the knee jerk reaction that as leaders we say is just so automatic Um, that people haven't really questioned them before. And so the automatic thing that people want to jump to is to say, it's a terrible thing that this church leader did, but um, I'm a sinner too. Everyone's a sinner. We can't Mm. judge. Mm. And there, but Mm. for the grace of God, go I. Um, and right. this which
0: sounds is, great
1: it does because <laughs> right? no one wants to be seen as judging, it sounds very forgiving it sounds um, like we are almost putting ourselves in the role of observer and judge, we are outside of the situation mm. and we create a sympathy for whom and this is my question, who do we create a sympathy mm. for when we do this yes. Yes. and we create a sympathy for the abusive. Yeah,
0: in, if, in this case it's Raving. Yes. Yes.
1: And so when we say, there for the, but for the grace of God go I, I, I like to do a little test every now and again and say to myself, outside of the church, where we know this is supposed to be the right answer, what does the average person think when they hear this? And I think mm. if you said to the average person,
0: mm-hmm.
1: someone I really admire has just been... It's just been revealed that they have been doing an awful criminal activity, one of the worst things you can do to someone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This is sexual abuse we're talking about. Mm-hmm. This is this is violating women's bodies. This is things that you know a woman dreads, and any survivor who's been through that, it's mm-hmm. it's absolutely terrible. And if you said to mm-hmm. them, "How do you mm-hmm. respond to that?" Would they go, "Well"? I don't know. I kind of understand it, you know. It, it could have been me, right? Like if that is your reaction yeah. to, well, there but for the grace of God yeah. go I, then you you might need to see a therapist um, because actually having <laughs> this kind of, if you if you can't trust yourself not to yeah. to do what is an awful crime and a and a heinous sin, then I think we've got some issues. And so although it sounds good. What it does is to make a false equivalency between the the things that we all understand. You know, I Mm -hmm. woke up, I was grumpy this morning. I got short with my kids because, you know, I didn't have enough coffee in my system. (laughs) Um, We understand that. That is sin that is relatable. Right. But when we make the extreme evil of sexual abuse a relatable sin, then we are saying that that is an understandable thing and we've just got to ask ourselves what does that say to survivors of abuse and what does it say to right. abusers when we make this kind of statement oh, see
0: yeah that's permission giving right like ultimately yeah. it's it's setting up an environment you could unwittingly be setting up an environment that is actually creating permission for people to step towards that behavior um, which is, which is, you know, obviously no one wants that, you know, that when I, I, again, I appreciate that idea of stepping back and saying, Hey, well, how is this heard in the, in the general, um, public? Um, yeah, I, the, the thing that I know for me, um, over these last number of years as the kind of me too movement gain, gained traction, I have, and as I've opened up these kind of conversations with, uh, the women in my life, I have been shocked at the depth of, um, you know, how often women have experienced this kind of violence. And, uh, and I, the thing that I think this particular, this false equivalency, um, is particularly dangerous is we know, um, you, you'd have to have your head in a sand as a leader to not realize the depth at which, Uh, women have experienced or uh, people, but primarily women have experienced, um, sexual violence to create this kind of path unwittingly by creating false equivalency by saying, Oh yeah, this is, um, you know, this is normal. You're, you're normalizing incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. behavior, um, evil, um, wicked behavior. Um, another thing you said that, that, uh, that I found particularly interesting was this whole idea of idolizing his books or idolizing his his and I cuz I've seen this one time and again yeah. since this it's this it's this disconnection of like well what he what he wrote was still great right um and and I, so I I Ravi actually came and spoke at my college 20 plus years ago and Um, he was there for a week of lectures and it was incredible. Like it was an amazing experience. Um, and it was, you know, it was one of those, you know, it's like, you don't really remember lots from college. I do remember that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we have this knee jerk reaction to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still good if I buy his books, right. Or, or feeling bad about like, oh, I can't believe the publishers are pulling his, his works uh, talk us through that. Why is that problematic in this? You know, this kind of idolizing of his work. Mm. Why is that problematic? Because we see this. This happens every time when one of these leaders. Uh, you know, when this stuff is exposed, you see that come up time and again.
1: Okay. Well, to answer that, I feel like I have to back up a little bit. And um, there's a guy called yeah. David Finkelhor, which is a fabulous name, and um, <laughs> he. In 1984, he published a thing about the, the four stages to, that an offender goes through before committing mm-hmm. the crime. I think he was talking in particular about um, child abuse. Mm-hmm. And in order to get to the stage where someone commits something of great evil, they have to overcome their own obstacles. We talk about grooming. And we're very familiar with grooming the victim, but we're less familiar with the way that offenders actually have to groom themselves in order to persuade themselves that what they are doing is okay. And one way that you can justify something like that to yourself is to say, overall, I do so much good that even if I have this side that is actually quite bad, overall, I'm still a good person. Or Even that sense of entitlement, I am so good, I'm doing so much work for the Lord, I'm saving so many millions of souls, kind of in the great reckoning in my head or in the world, I will Mm -hmm. still be seen as a good Mm -hmm. person. I can justify it to myself and I can justify it to everyone else. So as soon as someone is saying things like, sure, he committed crime, but look at what the other things he did they were good well sure he's kind of done this awful thing but he's got these really great words what we are doing is repeating what the abuser thinks about themselves in order to groom the environment that makes it easier for them to offend and this is why it's so serious this is why i'm kind of jumping on this um because it it seems so petty let's let's pull all his books and people get very worried about cancel culture and all that kind of thing but I'm like, there's, a, there's actually a really important thing at stake, which is preventing further abuse happening in churches. Um, I feel like I strayed from the question again. Bring me back. Um. So, yeah. About- no,
0: no, no. So the thing, so actually, I, I'd love you to go further in that, <laughs> because I think the thing that, that I think that's such a profound idea. Again, this is why I appreciate it. There's, and it, look, friends, we're just scratching the surface. You need to read the entire article. But. There's an untested thought there that's that I, you're like, oh, I. No one would say I want to be a part of grooming the environment, creating an environment upon which other leaders down the road can create, um, you know, this this kind of culture that allows this to happen. Everyone would say, no, I don't want to. I don't want to be a part of that. But in order for us to do that, we've got to stand up at this moment and say, actually, this was wrong, and we've got to. Um, remove his, in this case, Ravi's ability to influence people because there are other people again out there. And you didn't say this, but this is where my mind went. There are other people out there who are building similar power structures around themselves so that they're able to set up. And I shouldn't say people. There's other guys. There's other men that are out there that are doing this.
1: Well, I was just going to say on the gender thing, because, you know, I've been having a discussion about this um, from the article. I did point out that um, 20% of women in their lifetime will have experienced um, some kind of forced sexual act and 4% of men. Mm -hmm. So it does actually happen to men as well. Um, and I've had quite a number of male survivors contact me to thank me after this um, after the article. Um, but overwhelmingly it is men who are also the perpetrators. Um, so I think yeah. between two and eleven percent of all kind of adult sexual abuse is done by done by women. Mm-hmm. so it is overwhelmingly for men. I just wanted to jump in there for that. so yeah right. it's not.
0: No no yeah yeah no, men, but yeah. yeah. Yes. But predominantly. Well, and I think, I think for me, the part that I, um, I know, and I, we said this before we got on the call, but I friends, I feel like there's something broken in our tribe. There's a, there is a, there's something around. It's bigger than this. This is one particular case. Unfortunately, listen, I hope we never have to think about these things again. But I, but I, I'm been leading too long to realize that, you know, six months, a year from down the road, there'll be another one of these cases that will come to light and that's um, depressing and, and we have to do what we can. Let's pivot. I know I, I, I want to respect our time because I, um, we agreed to the time we agreed to. So I, I don't want to take up more than that. When you're um, thinking about this article uh, and kind of its impact what are you hoping will come out of it? Think, think about to the church leaders who are on here today, how would you suggest we could move forward in a kind of fruitful conversation, discussion? What, what could that look like? Give, give us some thinking on that.
1: Okay, I think the end goal is a church where survivors feel safe. And right now mm. the heartbreaking thing is, and I, will, I hear this, but church leaders won't. And I hear this because I'm on social media and because I'm a woman who has, who you know, every one in five women have gone through this, so I hear these. And what happens is every single time a church fawns over and celebrates the kind of the forgiveness and reinstatement of a repentant or a seemingly repentant um, abuser. We, you know, the church falls over. We love the stories. We love the stories of the repentant mm. sinner. And we yeah, rush too quickly to reinstate. And we don't look for repentance. And actually, we, all theology is a question of emphasis. But the emphasis needs to be rebalanced because there are so many men and women who are leaving the church because of this. And I don't just mean the direct abuse mm-hmm. survivors. But the whole watching world has seen that there is something rotten to the core Mm. about a church that will Mm. hold up as their exemplars, the abusers, that will quote from books and say, their work is so important that I'm going to quote from a rapist. As if that's the best theology that we can offer the world. I think we can do better. But that means we've got to start talking about it. And we've got to adjust this knee-jerk reaction and be more focused on the survivors and what they need because that's mm-hmm. where we need to spend most mm-hmm. of the time There's going to be a long work of healing and rebuilding of trust because the church has been part of the grooming process so the church as a whole needs to repent
0: Tanya, I uh, thank you for this article. Again, friends, it's uh, we'll link to it, but if you're just searching on your phone or on online, it's uh, the title of the article is, but his books are still good, right? Five things Christians must stop saying to sexual abusers. I would encourage you to uh, get this article uh, discuss it with your team. Uh, Tanya, I appreciate that. Is there anything else um, you'd like to share, or you know, if people want to track along with you uh, I, again? Since I've read this article, I've explored a bunch of your writing, and like, wow, you I think you have so much good to say, um, in particular around the topics like we talked at the top of the you know top of the interview. Anything else you'd like to share as we wrap up?
1: Yeah, um, I have a book, and my publisher would be very cross if I didn't mention it. Um, my, book <laughs> is, sure. my book is "Those Who Wait." Um, Uh, Finding God and Disappointment, Doubt and Delay. And what I do in that book is it's a kind of uh, slightly more creative devotional, exploring the stories Mm -hmm. um, of uh, Sarah and uh, Isaiah and John the Baptist and Mary, basically all people who not only waited but really struggled with waiting. And actually how even when we struggle with waiting and are grumpy about it and are not kind of like the model Christians that God (laughs) still meets us in that process Um, and so again it's kind of looking at familiar stories and really getting under the skin of them and saying have we understood this properly Um, so I, I this is just a really great time to be reading it as so many of us are just waiting and feeling that limbo and that frustration So I I do hope that that will be a ministry to to many people as well. You can follow my work at um, tanyamarlo.com where I do a newsletter as well.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate you being on this show today.
1: It's brilliant. Thank you.